and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oakland Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm Jarrett J. Prasoska. I'm an author and illustrator. I make books and graphic novels for young people, and my pronouns are he, him. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For everyone listening, you are listening to us record live from the Rhode Island Library Association Conference. So for anyone who's listening for the first time or for anyone in the audience who is here for the first time, this is Cranston Public Library's weekly podcast that we've been making since April 2020. Um, So we're going to chat with Jared a little bit uh, about his work and maybe a little bit about what it's like being a band author. I know some of it you touched in the keynote, but for our listeners who weren't at the conference, we'll we'll touch on all of that again. But let's jump in, as we always do, with uh, what have you been reading? I've been reading a lot of articles about how awful the world is. <laughs> I have, uh, so I have, I have three kids. They're aged uh, three, 10, and five. And by the time that I hit the bed at the end of the day, I, I don't have the stamina to read. So... My reading for myself has been mostly on the weekends, uh, mostly comics that I pick up from my local comic book store or graphic novels from my local indie bookshop. Um, But I really just had a lot of fun reading the Bad Guys series over the past year with my son, Xavier. And it was really fun to, you know, read those books and then take them to the movie theater to see an adaptation that was really true to the spirit of the actual underlying material. Fantastic. Um, What comics at the comic shop have you been like really into lately? So I'm a huge Batman fan. I've I've always been a Batman fan. And uh, the 1989 film just blew my mind as a kid. Um, I think I was probably in sixth grade. And I followed the, the production of that movie and then the sequel, Batman Returns. So all this is to say that when... It fell apart and Tim Burton was fired from the third Batman film. I was well aware of how all that went down and how uh, Michael Keaton left, but also how uh, Marlon Wayans was set to star as Robin. And I remember thinking like, wow, like that's going to be amazing to have a black Robin. And then also um, Harvey Dent, who was introduced in the first movie, played by Billy D. Williams, was supposed to return as Two-Face. But of course, uh, when they fired Tim Burton, like all of that went away. And so there's a new comic book series called Batman 89, which is written by one of the screenwriters for the, those films, who's written a series continuing that timeline of the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Batman universe. Oh, Nice. I was getting ready to jump in to be like, you need to remind me which Batman that was. But <laughs> we got there. Michael Keaton, I'm with you now. Um, is there any like graphic novels that you really enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. so I love uh, I love coming of age stories. Like Stand By Me was my favorite movie as a kid, and it's still my favorite movie. Uh, Miss Kinsey's by uh, Kate Verhardo. It's a brand new graphic novel, uh, basically based on her life experiences um, about a Kinsiera. And also, I just finished reading, um, sometimes the titles escape me. I'm, I have such parent pandemic brain fog right now. <laughs> I don't know. It'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. I'll interrupt okay. you at a, an opportune moment. <laughs> okay. It's funny that you say about coming of age stories, because I also enjoy a, a great graphic memoir. Um, Fun Home was like one of the first graphic novels that I read, and I absolutely loved it. Um Oh, okay. I'm going to trip you. It was a book that hasn't come out yet. Uh, It's Dan Santat's graphic memoir. I believe it's called First Time for Everything. I think that's why I had such a brain fog because I read it on my iPad and I was trying to (laughs) rack my brain of like Saturday and Sunday mornings in the sunroom just hanging out. It was my time to read. But you said about your love of coming of age stories, um, which I've talked about many times on the show that I'm part of the Rhode Island Teen Book Award Committee. And so we're reading YA novels and we're reading a lot of coming of age stories And I find such a different perspective on it now as an adult, like Mm. having gone through that and like the retrospect of of that coming of age narrative that I that is surprising to me when I'm reading. That's so different than reading those stories when you were like 
in it. Like yeah. it was funny. One of our guests said that her daughter is 12. There's someone who I work with at the library and she, uh, she really didn't like turning red. And then she was like, I think it's cause she's in it. Too like close, she's, yeah, it's like too, too close to home. Cause yeah. she's like in it versus like younger kids who haven't really gone through the things that that protagonist were going through really loved it. Cause yeah. you know, it's a huge red Panda. And then me as an adult loved it looking back on like and finding things yeah. relatable to um, the main character's story. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting to read coming of age stories now that, you've come of age <laughs> yeah i mean i i've just always just loved that moment in a person's life where they are trying to figure out who they are and who they want to be and as they get catapulted into the world independently of their families for sure um so um i know you said you don't have a lot of time to read so i don't know how much time you have to watch things but we also talk a little bit about what we've been watching on the show so <laughs> you know, it's, it's ironic that i sometimes say like well i don't I'm still like at the end of the day, right? I'm so tired that I don't have the stamina to watch a show, but I watch a lot of TikTok. So it's like for some reason, <laughs> my brain can handle, you know, an hour and a half of 15 to 30 second videos of strangers. <laughs> but then sometimes jumping into what well, I think also, I think the reason why I'm watching more TikToks is because my wife and I kind of have like this unspoken slash spoken rule that we watch shows together. <laughs> so it would I would feel like I was like inf I would feel like it to be infidelity <laughs> should I start a show without her Netflix cheating it's a thing yeah yeah so uh we we did a lot of comfort viewing during the pandemic so that by that I mean we rewatched a lot of shows that we've already seen so like Golden Girls and how amazing that stands up and for us that both reminds us of our grandparents because we grew up watching that show with our grandparents, you know, separately. And, and of course we would pause the show to be like, oh, my, I didn't realize my grandparents were laughing at such dirty jokes. <laughs> you know? And then, um, Schitt's Creek all over again, but we, we just watched all but the last episode because Gina doesn't want it to end. Uh, I mean, there's going to be another season, but it's driving me nuts. I want to watch this. It's, it's called the other two and it's on HBO max, I believe. And it's, about this family, Molly Shannon plays the mother, and the youngest kid is a Justin Bieber type success story singer. And the show is about the other two, the other two siblings who are just floundering in life. They're they're like older, like they're mm -hmm. both in their twenties, and it's hilarious. <laughs> it's really really funny. That sounds great. I haven't heard anything about that, um, so I'll have to check that out. But you talk about like starting shows together and, and not wanting to keep going. Um, like I recently, um, my partner's had a different work schedule than me until very recently because now he's on summer session um, at an academic library. But so I basically was like, oh, I get to pull out all the shows that he doesn't want to watch and yes. watch them by myself and not feel guilty about. We have those too. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I've like, I was like making a list of like, what are all the things that he's not going to want to What, what are those shows for you? Um, well, I talked about it on the show already, but I watched Sense8. I like, I got as close to, I got as, as to binging something, um, because, um, yeah, it, uh, he doesn't like shows that take themselves too seriously. So he's a big like comedy animated, but like for adults is like right in his wheelhouse. So one thing we did watch together was Big Mouth and we both found it hilarious and we did start but yeah now we're trying to find time to finish watching human resources which was the spin-off they did of big mouth which is all about the monsters yeah. that are in big mouth so the the hormone monsters and the love bugs and all the different things that are supposed to have influence over all of our lives and the little bit that we did watch um i thought was funny had the same energy same great sense of humor as big mouth so um that was a lot of fun um, but in terms of what I've been watching recently, I haven't really started any new shows, but I have been watching a YouTube channel where she gets people to send her recipes from all over the oh, world cool. under a certain theme. Um, like I just watched one where she asked 10 people to send her what they put on instant noodles. And so it's just really fascinating to see how people all around the world eat food. Like there was a woman from Poland who what she puts on instant noodles, not like just the noodles, no broth, salt packet. Just kielbasa. Uh, well, no, it was strawberries and whipped cream. <laughs> I make, I'm, I'm making that joke. <laughs> it was strawberries and whipped cream. That is really weird. Yeah. yeah. 
So she gets sent these recipes and then she kind of films herself making them in that like that's interesting f- in that like YouTube food show over yeah over the heads yeah. uh, shot style and then she tastes them on camera and gives kind of her opinion on how she feels about the different things. Um, but yeah, so it'll be like an ingredient or or like one was about like what you put on pizza and yeah, so like kind of an international perspective on like what toppings should be on pizza. Um, so yeah, it's been really cool. I watched it during my lunch break, so I know that it's not going to make me hungry because I'm already eating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Rhode Island Radio Online is the latest offering from Rhode Island Public Libraries. Roadie Radio is a weekly podcast that brings you voices from your neighbors around the state. Enjoy lectures, stories, and conversations with local artists, performers, experts, and scholars selected for you by Rhode Island librarians. You can find Roadie Radio at roadieradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're listening to Roadie Radio, you know you're listening to something good. Enjoy the latest movies, music, ebooks, and audiobooks instantly with Hoopla. Cranston Public Library cardholders can borrow up to five instant titles each month with no wait times or holds. You can download the free Hoopla digital mobile app on your Android or iOS device or visit www.hoopladigital.com to begin enjoying thousands of titles from major Hollywood studios record companies, and publishers available to borrow for instant streaming or temporary downloading to your smartphone, tablet, and computer. I mean, without further ado, I want us to have plenty of time to talk to you and to get our audience questions. So let's talk about Hey Kiddo. Sure, um, sure. So for anyone who's not familiar with the book, um, can you explain a little bit about what the book is about? Sure. So I should start by explaining what a graphic memoir is, because sometimes people will mistakenly refer to them as a graphic novel memoir. And I get where they're coming from, but you would also never say novel memoir. So (laughs) a graphic memoir is a memoir told in the format of a comic, a visual narrative. So uh, Hey Kiddo is a graphic memoir, uh, and it's it's geared towards young adults, although I know younger kids who needed it have have read it and and it's helped them as well but it's about my upbringing uh coming of age uh with a mother who was addicted to heroin and an absent father i was raised by my maternal grandparents who were very loving uh very rough around the edges heavy drinkers uh and the story is told from the perspective of my 16 year old self looking back at uh childhood and how how all of that came to be uh, and it's about art, how art buoyed me and saved me. And now I had some great teachers along the way that helped as well. And so I know um, for anyone who attended the keynote, you did touch on this a little bit. But what made you decide to finally go from writing fiction to telling your story? So I received my first book contract. It was, it was December 99. And I, I was just as I was turning 23 years old. And I thought, I'm sorry, no, just as I was turning... 20, how old was I turning? Wait a minute. Yeah, again, pandemic brain. My goodness. Okay. I, I was, tw- yes, I was 21 turning 22, right? So I was 21 turning 22 when I had my first book contract. And I thought to myself, oh, like, I, this is the happy ending for the kid who loved to draw and was surrounded by all that trauma and, and challenges. But I would, every time I would start to write about it, I would hesitate out of fear, out of fear of, of what people in, who were featured in the book would think. But also, too, and that's why the, the, my age at the time was important, 21 turning 22, I was still just still so close to it. You know, uh, I was still really too close to all of the events. Uh, and But over the years, I was working on humorous picture books and the Lunch Lady graphic novel series, which is this campy light take on a, a superhero book starring a lunch lady and my I would always gravitate tor- back in my sketchbooks to drawing you know what I would look like as a cartoon character my grandparents in a memoir and it wasn't until I I delivered an accidental TED talk so I was a I was a last minute cancellation for this uh, TEDx 
event that was happening in the next town over. I had four hours to get over there and jump on stage and deliver a presentation that I had not rehearsed. But I talked about my mother's addiction to heroin and how that affected me. And that talk went viral online. And I met so many young people, you know, as I'm book touring for my Lunch Lady books and the other picture books, I would meet so many young people who felt seen because they also had a parent who was addicted. And that made me feel less alone. Uh, and so there was this real, there was this real sea change in the switch in my mind where I thought, I always thought I might maybe want to write about my life as a kid to, I, oh, I really, I really feel the need to, I feel a responsibility to. And so, but that is like a 15 year span of time. Do you have any advice for anyone who wants to write memoir and has had hard stuff happen in their life? I think that, I mean, just like whatever you write online, whatever you write on the page, you have to deal with the ramifications of how that might affect other people in your life. So I, I have friends who've written memoir whose familial relationships got really strained from writing, even if it wasn't an intense story. So I was very conscientious about that going into writing Hey Kiddo. And anybody who's alive and featured in the book prominently I asked them to read early drafts of the book. And by no means, like, that's not something I legally had to do. Uh, it's just something for me I morally wanted to do. Uh, one, I wanted to see if if they were remembering things like I was, you know, because you know, a lot of time goes by and your, your memory, like, shifts and moves. And I wanted to make sure I had the facts correct. But also I wanted to have their blessings of, of having their name and likeness put in the book. It's complicated when your last name is Krasowska. I mean, it doesn't matter if you change the first name or not. Like, it's going to be really easy to identify who these people are in real mm -hmm. life. And so everyone, everyone gave their blessing. Uh, and that open conversation early on really helped. Now, not to say that some of those conversations are easy, right? So my biological father is in the book. And I have a relationship with him. We're not really, really tight. But enough that, like, you know... He's a human being and I care about his feelings, right? Of course. So um, that was a difficult conversation to broach because obviously it's he it's not going to be easy for him because he he didn't get in touch with me until I was 16, 17 years old. And and well, the awkward part is because it, it was trying to figure out if he wanted his real name or not. And I said, this, I, this is going to sound really harsh. And I said, I don't mean it to, but there's no other way to say it you're not in it that much because it's about my childhood. Yeah. You know, and, and I want you to read it because if I were in your position and I didn't raise this kid and I banned the kid and then later developed a relationship with that kid and that kid grew up to be a published author with this big audience. And if he came to me and said, I'm writing a book about growing up, I'd be really nervous too out of fear of what is in that book. So just read it and you'll see that it's very nuanced. And it, I think it's also nuanced in a way, because I grew up so much in those 15 years, you know, it, had I written the book at 22, everything was just so purely in black and white. But in those 15 years, I had more life experience and I could see the gray areas. I could see how there is no hero or villain, but varying, varying shades of complicated. And it also helped for me to become a father. And that's not to say like when I when I'm writing a book, I'm on the side of my protagonist and whether that's a toddler who doesn't want to go to bed or a really angry teenage boy who is angry but with his mother's absence. But it helped me write my mother in a more sort of caring and sensitive way because um, she 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 was sick, like she was addicted uh, to, to heroin. And, you know, addiction isn't a moral failing. It's a physiological failing. But it took me a while to figure that out. So, so my, my advice to, would be, one, if you were, you, you could also write it and just not show anybody. You could write it, you could give those moments to, to fiction. Um, but just know that there, whatever you're writing, there's going to be real-world consequences with your relationships. Uh, and, and maybe you just write things and you just wait because I find it helpful to, to have more perspective you know, I'm, I'm making more memoir. I have Sunshine coming out next year, which is about my time working with kids with cancer. I have other ideas for a memoir. And so sometimes people would say like, oh, you should write a graphic memoir about the pandemic. And it's like, 
no, like, <laughs> maybe in 15 years, mm. I, I have to process this. Mm. I need way more time to process what this has been going on. But, you know, at the, at, one of my favorite memoirists is David Sedaris. And so as I was struggling to write Hey Kiddo, you know, I went to go see him read and speak. And it gave me such good perspectives. Oftentimes I'm the author on stage and there's an audience, mostly of elementary school kids or high school students. And you ask for questions. And as the person up on stage, you're just like, okay, like bring the questions up. But to be in the audience and like, oh, it's gonna, it takes a lot of courage to be in an audience and raise your hand. And then you get called on and you're like, everyone's looking at me and listening <laughs> to me. And so I asked Mr. Sedaris a question. I said, how does your family deal with what you write about? And he said, well, I don't give away their secrets. And of course, my first thought was like, well, then what in the hell are their secrets? Because <laughs> that's a colorful life. Um, but it's true, right? Like there's plenty of stuff about some of the people featured in Hey Kiddo. And XYZ isn't necessarily my story to tell. And so that, that really helped me understand like how he handled it. And we, we drove home. And then I said, I still have some questions. Like, look, David Sedaris is just in town. And so um, I went back to get a book signed and I figured I'd be the last person in line and I was and I and I told him the story about my mother's addictions and she'd recently overdosed and died and, and I'm writing this book and I'm struggling with how to write about my father because he's going to read it and and you are able to, to, to bleep words out right yes. yeah and and so he just sat back in his chair and he said well here's the thing if you live your life like you're an ass you're going to be written about like like you're an so just go home and write the damn book <laughs> And like, yeah, like that really empowered me to say like, yeah, like I can, I can do this. I can write this. Um, and what was cool, like, you know, a couple of years after Hey Kiddo was published, he was, he was back at the same spot and I did the same thing where I was last first online, but then I gave him a copy of the book. Wow. So that's fantastic. It was fun. It was cool. <laughs> yeah. I think what you're saying about being, having space to process, yeah. I think is a really big deal. Cause I, I've, I've thought about writing about personal stuff that had happened to me. And I, now in hindsight, I'm thinking about the reason I couldn't get through writing it is because it was still too close. You're and, still in the thick of it. Yeah. And I think I had heard something about storytelling, probably at a webinar or presentation. You know, we've, we've all watched a lot of them over the last two and a half, three years um, that was saying that basically like you can't, you can't write about it when you're still bleeding. Yeah. And you have to be in a good mental state because it's going to erode that mental state. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I thought my second memoir would be easier and it wasn't. It was just as difficult, made more difficult because of the pandemic. And mm -hmm. and I think maybe made more difficult because I didn't think it would be as difficult. I, going into Hey I knew it would be challenging. Um Working on Sunshine made me realize how much grief I have I never processed mm. going through it. Um, also, a much different perspective of when it happened. I was a 16-year-old working with uh, children with terminal illnesses, and now I'm a father. And, yeah. and I have kids that are the age of the kids that I took care of then. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Sunshine. When it does come out, it can take its time. I'll be ready. Oh, thank you. April, uh, <laughs> April 2023 is the, the final date move, assuming, you know, big shipment boats don't get stuck in canals again. Knock on wood. <laughs> one of the things that, and it was kind of a really brief moment in the graphic novel, but one of the things that stood out to me was you, you talked about seeing like anti-drug, say no to drugs, mm -hmm. advertising, messaging, whatever yeah, you want to yeah. call it, growing up and how that kind of your personal story kind of changed your perspective on all of this messaging that yeah. you were seeing. Can you talk a little bit more okay, about so that? Okay, so if you grew up in the 1980s specifically, and I know there are, there are these PSAs in the, in the 90s and in the 70s, uh, but, you know, with Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaign, um, which is such a grossly oversimplified overview of the problem mm -hmm. um you know there were a few very famous or infamous psas one was a man with an egg and says, this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs and he fries the egg um and that was pretty like as a kid i was like okay yeah like that's that makes me not want to do drugs right like that's pretty like okay but then there is one there is one where uh there's this 13 uh, year old boy and he's 
he's in his room and he's got his headphones on and his, his dad comes in with a box and he says, what is this stuff? And it's a box of drugs. You know, it's always just, it's, oh, it's drugs. Like, and um, he says, where did you get this? Where did you, you know, who taught you how to do this stuff? And the kid, you know, it escalates, the emotion escalates. He goes, you all right? I learned it from watching you. And, and then the narrator comes on and says, parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. And now as an adult, I'm like, why the hell? Do they play that on Saturday mornings? Like that's really for the adults to to get themselves in line. Like, and mm. so I always had this like, oh no, my mother does drugs. That means I'm going to as well. It's like not the best messaging. And then also like it also became a punchline of you. All right, I learned it by watching you. <laughs> I also wanted to touch a little bit, which you which you touched on in your keynote about your experience getting pushback from, from school systems. And, um, cause I'm, I'm part of the intellectual freedom committee for the Rhode Island library association. So I was interested in hearing kind of what it's like as all these people saying, we don't think your work is appropriate for children. We think your work is obscene. Yeah. So, I mean, even I'll go even before Hey Kiddo and just by nature of being a graphic novelist and, mm -hmm. and people who have their prejudgments on that format, of graphic novels. It, so Lunch Lady was, had taken off. It was a couple years into Lunch Lady's initial run. And I was uh, visiting a school that required air in a flight, you know, so it was, a, it was like a, a lot of coordination that goes into this. And often when that happens, the hosting librarian will try to get some other schools involved to bring the travel costs down for the hosts. And this other librarian she was so excited and she brought the book into her principal's office and she said, look, this author's coming and we can get him at our school. And the principal, she took, you know, one look at the book and she, and she flipped through it. And she said, you know, I spent my entire childhood reading comics when I should have been reading real books. So I'm not going to have that man come to our school and promote comics. And all I could think of was like, but then you got to be a principal. Like, that's pretty, it's pretty notable. And You're doing Okay. Yeah, and I, you know, and I thought like was her was her goal superintendent, but like Archie and Jughead like just held her back, you know. <laughs> and and I've had to deal with you know having those conversations about the format, and 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 for those conversations, like I feel like there's you know it's a lot of just trying to patiently change points of view. In that, oftentimes when someone an adult says no, don't check out a comic i want you reading a real book that that teacher or that caretaker parent probably has not read a graphic novel like ever mm -hmm. let alone recently and certainly isn't aware of the professional academic studies that have been done on the benefits of of reading graphic literature yeah so like that was good training for then what would come with hey kiddo and and to be quite honest like when Hey Kiddo was first published, I was ex I was like braced, mm. expecting more pushback, um, and it had a, a an explosive launch. Like I was on Fresh Air with Terry Gross when the book the day the book published, it was a National Book Award finalist. Like I mean, it had an incredible launch. So I, almost like that that silver sticker and that Terry Gross stamp of approval kind of gave it a bit of a shield in the beginning. Where mm -hmm. um, like for instance, I was. I was going to be, um, I was, Hey Kiddo was featured as a one book, one region uh, for Connecticut College, like that whole surrounding area. Mm -hmm. And there was one person on the committee that said, over my dead body, will I let there be a comic book? So we killed her. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> She's murdered. No, no, she she didn't get her way. Everyone else overruled her. And... And I know this story because she told me, she came up to me after the event and to tell me that she had said that and that she read the book and she didn't know graphic novels could be good or like could be good stories. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, and so, um, but that, but shortly after Hey Kiddo was published, it was, I was going to be doing a Skype visit because that's what we called them before the pandemic hit. <laughs> Whoever's the CEO of Skype, man, drop the ball. And, uh, and so, and so we, um, I was going to be, all, all of seventh grade was going to read Hey Kiddo. And one parent stood up and said, no, we won't have this. It's like, there's, there's curse words, there's, there's drug use. 
And what kills me is like it's not pro drug use, like you know, like yeah. And, and I think by not. by nature of graphic novels, you don't have to read them to make an assessment on what you think it's about, right? Because you can just flip through and see a visual that might seem salacious to you out of context. And 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 I think that's why we're seeing a lot of of these bands as of late. And so the librarian, it was her first experience with it. And so she said, okay, like then we'll just have Jarrett read Lunch Lady, do Lunch Lady for like the fifth graders or whatever. And 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 I do not fault her at all because it was her first time dealing with that. And, you know, I let her know like I, I, I did not put it on my social media because I did not want to make her life any more difficult than it already was. Mm-hmm. And and she learned a lot from that experience. And now she understands like how she might handle it differently next time. Um, but being that it's an election year, uh, it's at an all time high. And part of it is, there, you know, parents were all up in their in their kids business because everyone was stuck at home. Mm-hmm. So suddenly they became more aware of of the books that their kids were reading. Um and like if you if you look at like banned book displays of, of current books, like you know, it's like my book has the only white character on the cover because it's so much of it is of you know racism because they're afraid that their white kids are gonna get their feelings hurt by the experience of these black characters, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um and then there's another level of things where they somehow think their kids are gonna become gay if they read about a character who's gay and which is so sad because I can't imagine how many kids are going to be just trapped in whatever closet that they're already in because of, because of seeing their parents or their communities to cry books with queer themes. It's yeah. really sad. Um, and I, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see if we will see this level of book bending next year when it's not an election year. Yeah, I I I guess I hadn't really thought about midterm elections. I also hadn't thought about parents seeing what their kids were reading possibly for the first time because of the pandemic. That's kind of changed my perspective on why all of this is happening. Um, but yeah, my heart goes out to the kids who are now going to feel unsafe, maybe in situations where they did feel safe because maybe their yeah. friend, you know, maybe their friends are supportive and their teachers are supportive. But then, you know, parents in their community are running into s- school committee meetings, shouting, shouting obscenities that are in the books. And that's their problem with them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I should add, I mean, some some people will say, well, like, well, if that kid wants it, if someone else's kid wants it, they could just order it on Amazon. It's like, well, one, it's a few things. Like one, like that's incredibly classist of you because you mm-hmm. don't know that that family has that disposable income to spend money on on one book, let alone all of those books. But also, if a kid is questioning, they don't want a, a list of books with queer themes in their parents' email. Yeah. You know, they want to go to their high school library or middle school library, which is a very safe space. And, you know, like my friend Mike Corrado, who wrote the graphic novel Flamer, gets notes from kids like that, you know, like and, um, you know, it's so often it's just like you said, that that one loud person in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by all means, the statistics show that more people are in support of the First Amendment. And but the, the loudest voices are, are getting all of the attention. So what I was dealing with in Iowa, there's one parent. Not only did he have have a problem with the book my book hey kiddo and the, and the the curse words he went on like this crusade he went to every single news affiliate in his city and what killed me is that in the in the interview he said i found this book in my son's car <laughs> and i was like wait a minute your son's old enough to drive your son's just months away from being able to serve and die for our country but you're concerned about a cursing grandmother, <laughs> right? Like, and when you think of the curse word, cursing in the book, so much of it is my grandmother. <laughs> a few from the, the me as a kid, but, and it's mind blowing. And sometimes the way the media covered it was, would really piss me off because they would talk about, okay, here's his problem with the book. And, and he has all these posts. He had a post note on every obscenity in the book. But then the B-roll would be just stock footage they had of, of children's librarian putting picture books on the shelf and you're like that is you are mischaracterizing 
this issue. Mm. This is not going next to uh, children's picture books. Like this is for teens. Yeah. You know, and and then one person on online accused me of being like the tobacco industry. Oh, because like Joe Camel was a cartoon who sold cigarettes. So because I have a drawing on the cover, I'm selling obscenities. And at one point he called it pornographic. And it's like I took such offense to that because like I had a very boring teenage life in that regard. (laughs) And if I was going to like be so fearful of my Catholic upbringing to then later have my teen life called pornography. Like, look, <laughs> it was like, I'm, I'm really mad about that. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, where do you, where do you get that as pornographic? There's no nudity or even mention of sex in the book. Yeah. Um, and even like, like there will be in future books cause I want to make more memoir and that's just a part of life. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and my book is different in that, like r- racism and homophobia aren't coming into play, mm-hmm. but this, this fear of their kids having to grow up too soon with harsh realities. And, you know, it didn't take me long to see, oh wait, okay, this, this guy's widowed. He has, he has three or four kids on his own. His wife died just as the pandemic was starting and he's hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there is a Senator who was clearly leeching off of that and going to and and going to all of the school committee meetings and i'm like that senator isn't even he doesn't even represent this district so mm-hmm. he's he's he is just playing the, the game of politics with this yeah. and he's the one who tried to um make it like a they could they could they could throw teachers in jail or or find them like twenty thousand dollars for having certain books and it was shot down. But just the fact that that was something he even wanted to introduce. Yeah. So I want to make a side note about the swearing in the book. I appreciated that the F word had an E instead of a U to really bring across like your grandmother's New Englander accent. Did it? Oh, that's at least I noticed that and thought that that was your choice. I guess if that well, wasn't no. your choice. Well, I, I'm trying to the, think of the, 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 anyone, the I don't know reason. if anyone has a copy of the book here, but um, there was at least one bubble that I remember with your grandmother. Oh, maybe and it was she like, was, maybe because e. you know what? Because she was drunk and slurring her words. Oh, OK. I'm was. sorry. Yeah. I read it as like the Worcester Southern New England. No, I, I did. And I found it very I, relatable. I did. There was one draft in which all of the dialogue was written out in the accent and it would have made it very unreadable, even if you have the accent. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's the one fair. thing where I wasn't, I wasn't able to get the regional accent through in the print edition. But that's why I loved we could do an audiobook edition. Yeah. And with the audiobook edition, you know, I ensured that all of the actors dropped the ass. <laughs> so it would sound, it would sound like the, the, the region. Okay. Well, you got you got to hear my interpretation yeah. of your book yeah because you know when she was drunk like a one syllable curse word would be five syllables um but yeah i guess before we turn it over to questions is there anything else that you want our audience or our listeners to know about your book no let's bring bring on the questions and maybe (laughs) maybe something will come up from that Okay, um, so we do a segment called The Last Chapter where we talk about a library or bookish-related question, but I come up with these questions with the help of the creative team all the time. But now our audience will come up with the questions for our guests, so I will turn this microphone towards our audience. Our audience, that was super Rhode Island of me. <laughs> um, and then everyone can kind of line up here. Bring them up, bring them up. I, I wanted to start this one out with I know one that will I know play to the audience here. Uh, in your keynote, you mentioned how you feel of how you feel about librarians, and I just wish you could get that on recording for the podcast for the audience of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, um, librarians have always served such an essential role in our society in a way that people have always taken for granted and never fully understood because they think, oh, they just check books in and out. Um, but you know, you're you're on the front lines of these this this battle for a kid's right to read. Um, and you have to deal with those really awful, awkward situations in your space. Like I deal with them, but I'm in my home and it comes via social media or other news alerts. Um, you might have to be face to face with these people or dealing with a social media onslaught. That is your community, even though it's online. So I, I can't even comprehend how frustrating and what a waste of time it must be for you when you want to be using that time and energy and 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 mental headspace to be 
putting together programming, reaching, coming, brainstorming with your colleagues and creating some, some great concepts for, for your spaces. Um, because y'all do so much more than just checking books in and out. And, and, and also, you know, with the pandemic, people have also, I think, realized more so that, oh, like, this is a community space. And whether you're a school librarian or a public librarian, like, you know, your students, your patrons, and it's not just about sending them to the bookshelves, but saying, oh, you know, the last couple of times you, you checked out this book and this book, you might really love this book. You know, it's much more direct than any algorithm could do in, in terms of getting the right book into the hands of the right kid. So I just loved Hey Kodo when it came out, you know, bought it for the library. And we just I just have such a huge graphic novel collection. It's by John. It's like my teen room is the smallest room, but graphic novels take up the whole part of it. But my question is, what is the like advantages and disadvantages of being an illustrator and the writer because I'm so impressed when I buy the novels and it's written and illustrated by the author. Like that's fabulous. To me. Well, I mean, it's that I get aside from a memoir because they have right, right, real no. people. You know, I've illustrated only a couple of books, and I really didn't enjoy the process as much because I'm that helped me realize that I am indeed an author first and an illustrator second. Because even with the pictures, I am the author. I'm telling the story. So uh, when you're both you really get to decide what stays and goes in either the words or pictures. So, you know, you write your first draft and then you sketch it out and you might realize you don't need half the sentences you have there because you're telling the story through through the art. So your words and pictures are teammates, but you don't want them to step on each other's toes. So they they should not tell the exact same story. They don't necessarily, they don't contradict each other. But the words are telling one part of the story and the pictures are telling another part of the story. When they come together, they tell the full story. So, uh, for instance, like I have a book called Punk Farm. And the first sentence of the book is Farmer Joe works hard all day long. And in the illustrations, you see Farmer Joe walking towards his red barn and then you see his farm animals. Well, had I written Farmer Joe had a red barn, it, I'd be repeating myself. So you see, you already know that because you see it. So I, I tell young authors that it's very helpful to read your work out loud when you're revising it. But if it's, if it's illustrated, you read the pictures out loud too. So read the words out loud and then out loud, describe what you're seeing in the pictures. And if you find yourself repeating yourself, then odds are you don't need it in the text and the, or vice versa. And that, that class that Rizzi sounded fabulous, that picture and word. That yeah. Picture and word. Uh, class that sounds like. Uh, Six credits, three illustration, three uh, English every Wednesday from like nine to three. I believe class is still there. But, you know, that's not all that foreign of a concept for all the studio classes tend to be five, six hours. Did you ever contemplate how you turned out so intelligent with the fact that mom probably was a user during pregnancy? What made your dad show up at your age 16? Um. By all accounts, my mother refrained from using during pregnancy, oh. uh, you know, at least when she found out she was pregnant. I mean, that being said, like, I'm sure I didn't get a lot of good prenatal care. <laughs> I'm sure of that. But, um, you know, I had my grandparents and and every kid just needs an adult somewhere in their lives that's going to look out for them. And, and I had a lot of teachers that looked out for me, too. Uh, what motivated my father you know, probably years of guilt and wondering. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad he did because I, I can't fathom not knowing. Like, I think that would be psychologically really hard to not like know what he looks like or, or what he sounds like and that kind of stuff. Um, so it also, I, you know, I don't know. It also could have been a race against time because, you know, he could have known I was coming to age and I looked up his name in the phone book plenty of times. So so maybe, maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. Thank you. As a librarian for the past 20 years, I've worked on collecting graphic novels like a lot of the folks in this room. And sometimes I think that we, because we have the term graphic novel or graphic memoir, that it really confuses people and they think it's going to be graphic. graphic. Yeah, sure. Do you ever sure. wish that we could come up with a different terminology for the medium? No, I mean, the term graphic novel was coined by Will Eisner in the 1970s, right? So, and that was his way of saying, this is this is serious work. Like, this isn't a kid's comic book. I don't know if there could be an alternative. I think that, uh, you know, people are, people are figuring it out. But there was this really, there was this really funny uh, tweet 
that got screenshot and memefied where this woman was meeting someone for the first time and she said, oh, I write graphic novels for kids. And then the other person responded with like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize there was a market for erotic work for children. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not like that. It's not like that. <laughs> well, as one who writes for kids, I, I am very conscious of saying books for grownups versus adult books. <laughs> so Taylor once asked me this on the podcast, so I'm going to pay, uh, pay it forward. Um, what are your five desert island books? I would bring five empty sketchbooks. That's a good answer. <laughs> good answer. Hello. Hi. So um, this really doesn't have anything to do really with the library itself. But when you were sharing your story of how you started to draw and you copied pictures out of books that were your favorite, it reminded me of my nephew. I don't have kids of my own, but one of my nephews, he is a really good artist. He's about, he's going to be seven in August. And I bought him a drawing set for Christmas because I saw that talent in him. And listening to your story about how that's how you got started um, really made me think of how else to help him springboard off of that. He's into Dogman and a few other um, graphic novels right now. He and his brother are both obsessed with those and they're trying to draw them too. So I'm definitely going to introduce him to Lunch Lady and nice, some of your you. other graphic novels. And um, maybe I can share the recording with him and show him, hey, you know, one day you could be an author of these books and he does make the books like you did so he staples papers nice. together oh, awesome. and then makes a story and colors them and and he's he's really good so as soon as you were talking about that and showing it a light bulb went off in my head and i said i have to share this with my nephew because it just reminded me so much of him so that's thank cool you. Well, well bring him to my um youtube channel where i have a lot of tutorials and stuff like that he watches youtube all the time and learns how to draw from that too yeah. so i definitely will that's thank awesome you. you're welcome thank you so I didn't get to go to your earlier reading, um, but I did want to ask um, when you're confronted with uh, people protesting or people like the downside of, of uh, the graphic novels and people like there's controversy, like how do you respond? Because as a librarian and as an aunt and mother, I've found that graphic novels are definitely a way in for kids that might be turned off by reading because of a whole host of things, whether it's like reading difficulties at first or just attention or whatnot. So that's often a response I give as a librarian when parents are like, oh, they only want those books. And I'm like, those those are the books that go out the most, actually. Yeah. So. I think it depends on the energy that's being brought to me, right? Like, so if someone's approached me with a kind affect, I'm going to have an incredibly kind and patient conversation with them. If they're coming at me hot, I'm just going to probably block them on social media. Like that's way better for, for my mental health. Um, but you know, regards to like how, like the, the Iowa situation, I never made it about that one man's issue. I made it about the overall arching problem because that's what we're talking about. Like that's his experience and that, that you know, his experience is his experience. I can't argue with that. Um, what I can argue is that he lives in a state in which it's like the third for opioid deaths in the country, right? So this is why I can say this is why we need books like this. This is why these books help. Um, so like anything, as much as you can make I statements um, and as, as much as you can not give that person oxygen to make the fire greater, right? Um, and And different authors have different levels of what they can deal with. Right. There are some days where I just like, I just don't have the energy to deal with it, you know. Um, and there's sometimes where I'm like, all right, I'm rolling up my sleeves and I'm making some TikToks. <laughs> and and maybe it's just the format, but there I, I've experienced way fewer trolls on TikTok than than say Twitter. Um, but what I would do whenever so this was my technique for dealing with those the Iowa news pieces. I would film myself in the studio, my studio as if like I was just seeing that news thing for the first time. And I'd be in the middle of reading a book, but specifically a book by someone in a marginalized community who was also getting banned. So, you know, so, so like I'd be holding gender queer or all boys aren't blue. And then I just pre had pre-written word balloons on what I wanted to say about it. Like, you know, um, but how many people would come into my comments saying that the books I was holding were, were pornographic. And, you know, I guess by nature of TikTok, not being Twitter, 
is I guess with Twitter, it's like I might be having a conversation with you, but now who are these hundred people coming? I don't want to talk to them. I'm trying to talk to you. Mm-hmm. But with TikTok, you kind of mostly can just talk to that like one person. And and if I would try to have patient conversations, and if it went south, I'm like, eh, block. I'm done. This is <laughs> you're in my TikTok. Like it's up to me if you're welcome here or not mm-hmm. in my space. And um, but one person was like, look, I don't agree with you, and you don't agree with me. But I really respect how you approach this conversation and just heard me and I heard you and then she followed me. So like (laughs) maybe she's going to see some of the other stuff I post down the line, you know? So in a lot of these situations, you're not going to change their minds in the immediate, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. All right. Everyone's going to have to bear with me now because I, I'm, I'm going to get a little mushy and thank some people. For getting us here but firstly thank you Jarrett thank for, you for, for taking the time to be on our show um, I've been blown away across our 100 plus episodes the kindness and generosity that people have showed me with their time um, thank you to Dave for being an awesome editor and making me sound eloquent and put together week after week thank you to the rest of the creative team for helping me come up with ideas and coordinate guests and make the show happen because i think if it was just me and dave for all this time it would not still be a thing that was happening thank you to our admin who are not here but hopefully listen to this episode for letting us do this show thank you to the Ryla conference for letting uh me fulfill my dream of being a podcast star and doing a live performance Thank you to my partner for uh, being so supportive over over my time making the show and in all things. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we would not be making the show if people weren't listening. So thank you, everyone, for coming to the session. And thank you, everyone, who's listening in your earbuds later on. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can find it wherever you find fine podcasts at Downtime with Cranston Public Library. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. And if you want to send us ideas, questions for the last chapter, answer to our last chapter, questions from previous episodes, or just say hi, you can email us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Thank you again for listening and thank you everyone who's been here and attending and making this possible. And this is another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Nomi Hay, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL, and if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. So your name is Taylor? Uh Uh-huh. I just thought everyone had a wicked accent.